As you did for these fearful disciples, would you breathe into us, our dear Jesus, your Holy Spirit, that we might have power to offer something very good to the world. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. I spent eight hours on Facebook yesterday. It was a very fulfilling experience. That's not true. But, uh, but I clicked on one of those advertisement links, and it said that if you wanted to see the ten um, most famous unfinished masterpieces, click here. So I did. And it's one of those dumb things where you have to keep clicking links to see the next masterpieces. And so, but I, I saw several of them, and, and uh, they reminded me of the, of the, the, the sadness that these projects, the sadness involved of incomplete projects. I was thinking about Mozart's Requiem, which was never really finished. And then Dickens' uh, famous collection, The Mystery of uh, Edwin Drood, which was never finished. And uh, Stewart's beautiful painting of George Washington, you know, most of it is canvas. It's white canvas. It's just the face of the president, but it's unfinished. And all of these things were halted because the artist departed this life, and the projects remain unfinished, masterpieces that were never complete. Uh, John chapter 20. In John chapter 20, we have a great commission. You know, there's not only one great commission. Everybody quotes the one from Matthew's gospel, but every gospel has a great commission of sorts. And uh, in this great commission, Jesus tells his disciples that he wants his legacy, his life's work, uh, the things that, that he's done to, in some sense, be carried on, that they wouldn't end with his departure, but would continue and spread. Um, and so he gives this great commission. And in this great commission, Jesus is giving his disciples three gifts that he himself received and now is giving to them so that they will be able to continue the work. That he is equipping them with things that were intrinsic to his own mission, needful elements. He's giving them to these disciples. And so the three things are ascending, a spirit, and a script. I'm going to talk about those three things. The sending. Jesus says to his disciples, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. There's a pattern in what he's saying here. There's a pattern of relating between Father and Son, the Father who sends the Son, which becomes a model for how he interacts with his disciples. As he was sent, they are sent. And sent is a, it's a heavy word. It's an intentional word. It's not like strolled, you know. Um, Jesus didn't accidentally stroll into the human plight. He didn't accidentally toddle our way. Uh, he was sent. He believed that his life was directed by God, directed uh, to the Middle East in 4 BC. John is adamant about this idea to the degree that he repeats this term in his gospel 56 times, just so we get the hint. And most of those references have to do with something really important and impressive. Um, they don't have to do with things like, and Jesus, being hungry, sent Peter to Arby's to get him a sandwich. 
Uh, They have to do with something far more religious and supernatural. They have to do with the, the sending of Jesus by the Father, the Father's relationship to the Son. Uh, The word sent in John's Gospel is almost always uh, connected to those ideas. And so I'll just name a few of them. John 4, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. John 5, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. John 7, I will be with you a little longer and then I'm going to him who sent me. In our lives, we are often uh, unsure, uncertain about our purpose or direction. Some people spend 20 years being uncertain of what's going on in their life and how they've been directed or misdirected. Jesus never had that inner consternation. He never woke up in the middle of the night wondering if he was really following his life's purpose. He always knew and was driven by uh, this uh, divine compulsion, um, pushing him, pushing him uh, toward, as we know, the cross. And so as Jesus is now ready to depart, to be fully absorbed into the life of the infinite, what we call the ascension, he wants his legacy or his work to continue on without his physical presence. And so he says to the disciples, as my father has sent me, so I am sending you. Um, Jesus comes into our world based on a divine mandate. God sends him here makes him the incarnate Lord of the world. And he is sending us out as little Christs into that same world uh, to, to reflect that same sort of incarnate love and presence and grace. And this is a, a needful point to remind us that Christianity was never suited for a conclave. We were never supposed to exist in this holy huddle of a bunch of people that just agree with each other creating for ourselves an echo chamber in which we become more and more self-righteous the longer we talk. Isn't it great to have a mutual admiration society? I said this two weeks ago. That's all I want from my friends. I just want to create with them a mutual admiration society, and we'll get along swimmingly. But that's not what we're about. Christianity was never purposed for some ghetto, some containment. We are, as Jesus was, sent. Now, I don't know what your sphere looks like, where you've been sent, where you are right now. I don't know what kind of connections you have, but you have gone into a place, and that going, that sending, has a divine orchestration and purpose behind it. It's not just happenstance, you know. There's something about where you are now that has a quality that is divine in its origin, that you are sent We have a God, a missionary God, who sent a son, and his son sends us. More than that, we have a spirit. Verse 22, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. An unconventional uh, practice, uh, even for Jesus. Um, uh, Why is he doing this? It's a bizarre sort of religious ritual. Uh, It's sort of a a miniature Pentecost, though. It's a preview of a Pentecost to come. This Pentecost involves breath. The next one will involve wind and fire and speaking in tongues. But this imagery of breathing on someone and it being related to the Spirit of God goes all the way back to Genesis 2. 
and God's creation of the first man to reflect his image and likeness. God makes Adam from the ground and breathes into him. The word in, in Hebrew is, uh, is ruach, which could mean spirit or wind or breath. It's a reference to the Holy Spirit. Breathes into him the breath of life and he becomes a living soul. Um, this, is, um, this is a posture that Jesus is taking upon himself. Now he is the one, like the Father before him, who has the power not only of creation, but in this instance of new creation, who is sending out this new team, empowered by the Spirit uh, for the work ahead. The, the, the Spirit in the Bible is always the, the personality and power of God that creates animation. Uh, the idea in Scripture is that the change required in us and in the world is so significant and the problem so severe that the strength of willpower alone cannot and will not cure the problem. We need, um, we need, if you will, a foreign element, a power from outside that can come to us uh, and, and, and animate us. This is what the Spirit does for Adam, what he does in the Valley of the Dry Bones. Uh, this is what the Spirit does for apostles huddled in an upper room. Um, this fills them with power. And this is, uh, this is needful in our time to remember that Christianity is not just about ideas, you know? Little points of debate that we can uh, bandy around at lunch talking about the theology of election. You know, maybe you've never done that. You're not as dorky as my friends are. Um, but but it, it's not just about that debating points. Christianity is about power in the present to do that which we could not ordinarily, by our own power, do. And so um, there's this powerful element that is coming close to the disciples. And they need it. They need it because they're locked away in a room with no candles. They're afraid that they'll end up just like Jesus, tortured to death. They're terrified. They're scared. And we would be too. And so they need a foreign element to reanimate them. And this is what Jesus is offering to them in this sacred breath. Uh, I, I've been thinking about the, the power of Christianity, the power to make change in the present. And I was reading an excerpt of Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail. You may know that he was imprisoned for leading a march without a license. That's all it took, and they put him away. Um, well, he wrote in this letter about a method that his followers used to withstand uh, the hardship that would come to them as they peacefully protested. And this is what he writes. We had no alternative except to prepare for direct action whereby we would present our very bodies as a means of laying our case before the conscience of our local and national community. Mindful of the difficulties involved, we decided to undertake a process of self-purification. We began a series of workshops on nonviolence, and we repeatedly asked ourselves, are you able to accept blows without retaliating? Are you able to endure the, endure the ordeal of jail? Are you able to live in the love of God? He understood that what was needed to peacefully protest 
in the face of such rabid opposition. He needed to be at a place of peace in the love of God. Because human beings don't have enough strength innately to, uh, to respond to hate with love. To respond to fire hoses and dogs and spit and names that no children should ever have to hear with love. That comes from the foreign element. That comes from the spirit. Uh, that comes from God. And Jesus, before he sends these tattered and frightened apostles out into the world, animates them by the Spirit. By the way, this happened to Jesus too. The Son of God needed this. That's why the Spirit comes to him right before his ministry begins at the baptism. You remember it, where God spoke those loving parental words, you are my beloved Son, and then gives him the Spirit. And so now Jesus, having received that gift, gives that gift so that they can go out and do the work, the very hard work that God has given them to do. So we have ascending and a spirit. Also, thankfully, a script. They're not like making the message up or, or you know, just being creative with their own energies. The, the script, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. The script is critical because it shows us that the expansion of Christianity, the sentness of these disciples and us, their forebears, uh, is um, never advanced by the sword. Never by force, never by coercion. We are not to create a Christian caliphate. Um, not manipulation, not brainwashing. Here is our tactic, our script, our message. Pardon. That's it. That's the thing we have to offer the world. A message of pardon. That the one whom we have offended so gravely in thought, word, and deed over and over and over again like lusty, hungry addicts has absolved us by the death of His own Son. Remember, the only solution to the absolute is absolution. And that's what we have. That's what was gifted to us at the cross. And so these um, men are to be spokesmen of that message. Now there's an error that's presented in relation to this text that Jesus here, if you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven, is somehow granting Christian leaders, clergy, an innate ontological power that they alone possess to pardon people. That Eric and I, if you will, are grace shaman. And if you have a problem with the ultimate, you come through us. And you come to us first. And we can, with the right sort of persuasion, help you with your problem. And I can wave my hand in front of you and all manner of things shall be well. Some people read this passage in this way. Uh, this, I used to tease Colin and before him, uh, Gillis Harp, our former senior wardens in this parish, that if they went in a direction that I didn't like. I reminded them that what I bind on earth is bound in heaven. So don't mess with me and check yourself before you wreck yourself. <laughs> Can you believe they did not listen to me or believe me? Uh, I want to say this. In the New Testament, it is universally true that the forgiveness and pardon of God is always tied not to priestcraft, 
but to the public proclamation of the gospel through word and sacrament. It is never some Illuminati gifting. I wish that it were. I could make more money. But, (laughs) alas, I'm actually glad that it's not. Uh, uh, Jesus, you see, is giving the church and the church's leaders her focus and script, which is the message of forgiveness and pardon. Now, there's a positive and a negative aspect of what was said here in this script. The positive, if you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven. You see, Jesus was an artisan of pardon. It was his masterpiece. He, he understood the nature and power and dynamism of forgiveness. It so rarely happens in this life, you know. People say, oh, I forgive you, but just cross them, and you'll see how, how deep that forgiveness runs. Uh, but Jesus really believed in it. Jesus really embodied it. And he knew how deep our need was for forgiveness. This is why when the paralytic was brought to him, you know, they did that breaking and entering thing and tore up the ceiling and dropped their friend down on a makeshift mat. And then Jesus comes over to the man and says, before he offers words of healing, he says, son, your sins are forgiven. Well, he didn't come there for a confession, you know. He didn't come there for some absolution. But Jesus knew that was his core need, and so he offers that to him first. And he does that with this, with this mafia-esque character named Zacchaeus who makes his money from ripping off widows and orphans. And, and Jesus goes to his house and, and forgives him and says, today you're a son of Abraham. And he does this with this woman who's been sleeping around a lot. And she gets caught, and they bring, him, they bring her before Jesus, and they throw her on the ground, and they want to pelt her with rocks until, until she dies. And, and he says to her, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Words of liberation. New life. And then he does this on the cross, you know, when everybody's making fun of him. And, the, and, the, and they're all jeering at him. And they're, and they're wanting him to die. And he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And then, of course, the meaning of the cross is that he forgives us all. For all of it, you know. And so he was an artisan of pardon. He loved it. He believed in it. He embodied it. And he's passing this gift and this focus onto his own followers. He's not asking them to do anything he himself has not done as well. And so he is, um, this artisan of pardon is leaving the world with apprentices, people who could speak pardon on his behalf. It's a powerful thing to hear objectively that you're forgiven. That it's all done. I had this happen to me when I was 20 years old. I was in college and having a very, very difficult time. And I didn't really know why. You know, all the externals in my life were okay. They weren't great, but they weren't bad. But I I was dying inside. I felt lost and very lonely. And and I felt like um, my hurt, the hurt that I was carrying, was fermenting into hate. You ever had that happen? And I didn't know what the cure was. But I went to this Episcopal priest tonight, and I told him what my problem was in, in a kind of a confessional situation where I was about a third repentant. You know. <laughs> Most of the time our repentance really stinks. Uh, but um, he said, I don't know what advice to give you, but I'd like to pray for you. And I said, okay. And so he, uh, he reached out and he touched me, he grabbed my head, my, 
I didn't, I wasn't raised with that. I'm like, what are you, boundaries? I mean, haven't you read the, like, what? Don't, don't touch me. Like, just pray from a distance. I don't want to hold hands with you, you know? And so he grabs my head and he, and he says, um, Ethan, uh, I, I simply want to declare to you the complete and permanent absolution of all of your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It was that simple and that beautiful, and I collapsed. I hadn't cried in ten years, and I wept like a child on his ugly paisley carpet. And I wept because I I had forgotten along the way that this whole thing, this whole Christian thing boils down to pardon. That once I was blind, but now I see, you know, I... I've been forgiven. Like Wesley said, this gift came to me, even me. There's something about hearing that objective word. And so Jesus knows that the only solution to the absolute is absolution. So he sends absolvers into the world to declare, based not on our own righteousness, but on the gift of Christ, the forgiveness of sins. It's one of the reasons, by the way, this is not just sort of a a rah-rah kind of team-building exercise in saying this, but one of the reasons I'm an Anglican is because I get to hear that every week. I get to declare the pardon of sins. And when Eric is officiating, I get to hear it. It's a wonderful gift to hear those things week after week. Maybe one of these days we'll like believe it. Wouldn't that be nice? Um, And so pardon is our script. It's our script. And Friends, when Christians depart from this script or get distracted from this script, things get weird and they get bad and we start infighting and it just it gets insane. I mean, we start acting like the the core on the core matter or substance of Christianity is how old you think the earth is or what view of the book of Revelation you take or what denomination you're a part of. Or, or like what economic system is, is most fitting with Holy Scripture. I mean, it just can get weird and we can get bogged down in these rabbit, we can get lost in the rabbit trails and forget what was the center of this thing the whole time. And the center of this thing is forgiveness, is the message of forgiveness. That's the positive thing. If you forgive the sins of any, that is by proclaiming what Christ has done, by declaring what he's done, They're really forgiven. It's all done. It's all over. There's a negative, though. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. When I first read that as a teenager, I thought, I have a little uh, scribbled note in my Bible saying, who on earth would want to do that? You know, no Christian worth her salt would say, no, I think we should lock up the gates tighter. You know, I really don't want people in. Not with me. Um, But, friends, there is a churchly and... and, uh, kind of a sad occasional necessity to withholding forgiveness. That is, we don't declare pardon for those who don't desire it or who reject it. Because it would actually go against against, uh, their current state and it wouldn't benefit them. What uh, What people need who are in the zone of rejection, what they need first before the gospel is the law. They need the law to do its excavating work and to show uh, the, uh, the profound need of the human soul and how far we've fallen. 
before the gospel will make any sense. And so the word of forgiveness in those situations doesn't make the same sort of sense. And so we have from this artisan, this Jesus, a sending, a spirit, and a script. These are things that both ancient and contemporary disciples like us need in order to carry out and carry on the legacy of Jesus Christ into our present moment. And so, ascending. You know, there's a great task in your path. It might not look great in er by earthly standards, but I'm wondering what God might do with you in your life, in your time, in your sphere, utilizing your gifts and your weaknesses for great kingdom purposes. And I'm wondering about the Spirit, because, you know, the world and sin and fear, they're all too strong for us. We need the external element the external element to come and be near us and to give us power and to propel us. And the script, you know, you don't need to be an expert in everything regarding Christianity. You don't need to be an expert in every last little bit of theology. But you do need to get one thing right. And that is the center of this whole enterprise is reckless pardon. Pardon that we would deem irresponsible. But that's what we have in this Christ. And you have been given a key in your hand. You've been given a key from God. And so your happy task now is to go unlock a few cells, a few doors, in the name of the artisan of pardon. This is how the masterpiece of Christ continues to be sketched out, written, and fulfilled. And you are a part of it. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.